Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and I'm Betty's daughter. And I'm very pleased to have uh, Derek Jensen uh, join me today. And Derek is the author or co-author of 25 books, including Bright Green Lies, Endgame, The Culture Make-Believe, and A Language Older Than Words. Uh, Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Derek. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Now, share us a little bit about your background and the place that you're from. Um, Well, um, I grew up... In, I was born in Nebraska, grew up in Colorado, and uh, then lived in Nevada and Idaho and uh, Washington, and then now I live in far northern California on the coast in the Redwoods. Wow. And, um, so far as my background, um, uh, my first degree was in physics, and I didn't really like that very much, and I became a, a beekeeper, and then uh, got a degree in writing, and then I've been a, a writer, mainly of books, but also articles ever since, and also, of course, an environmental activist. Um, and labeled like the eco-philosopher on Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman show, I, that's kind of fun title. You also host a podcast as well. And uh, I listened, and I absolutely loved the show that you did with Diane Wilson. Um, you want to give a little background on Diane's background? Um, uh, she's a, a person who is deeply in love with Galveston Bay and uh, has been since she was a kid, and she's a, I don't know, <laughs> second, third, or fourth generation shrimper uh, who has been fighting the chemical industry and the um and and overfishing and the general destruction of of the earth in her place and yeah the interview i would really encourage people to go check out this interview because um so she she fights fights this company for 30 years and she's incredibly successful and she actually raised millions of dollars um and um at one point in her activism her lawyer got hired by the mining company and she decided i'm just going to keep doing the legal stuff myself i mean it's such a story of resilience um and one of the other things I love that she said on your show is that I'm 72 and I really like myself. And I um, I just feel that there's so much uh, was, was living in her, but it was that listening to the bay. It wasn't just her as a human. It was um, her connection and her as a community that created some of that activism. Um, well, I think... Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what your question is with this one. Sure. Um. I guess. What did you learn from Diane Wilson? Um. Honestly, that was just one interview. You know, I've done hundreds of interviews of people, and I mean, if, if you want to talk about my work, then I'm happy to do that. But I can't. I I've only talked to her like an hour in my whole life. Okay. I mean, do you want to? Do you want to start the whole interview over? Because I, I don't really know her. I mean, she, she's inspiring, but no, it's, it's... I don't think we have to start the inter- whole interview order, over because um, what I learned from listening to you in that moment is the power of 
of people actually taking action. Um, and so... Um, well, I'm, I'm really happy to talk about that. And I think that that's, you know, much of my work is about attempting to get people to defend the land that they love and to find something. And one of the things, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, I've been an activist for 30 years and I've been writing for 30, 35 years. And so often people will say, well, what should I do? And I always say, I can't tell you what to do because I don't know, I don't know who you are and I don't know what you love. And so, but what I can say is I can say, what is it that you love? Because whatever you love, it's under assault. And this is true, whether it's a place, you know, we mentioned, uh, you know, I, I mentioned I grew up in Colorado and interestingly enough, I, I, the, the neighborhood I grew up in just burned last week, which, uh, you know, I'd moved away 38 years ago. So that's, that's, it doesn't have a strong emotional attachment, but the interesting thing is that I really became an environmentalist or, or recognized that this culture was headed headed nowhere, headed to a very bad place, when in second grade they put in a subdivision next to where I lived, and I didn't yet have the language for this, but I understood then that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet, because the language I did have when I was seven and eight was, if they keep doing this, where will the meadowlarks go? Where will the garter snakes go, the grasshoppers, the ants, the cottonwood trees? And so I, I learned very early that, um, I mean, it's very clear that, that you can't continue to build without, any time you build something, you're destroying somebody's home. And, you know, I, I'm known for saying that this culture is inherently destructive. Not all cultures, this culture specifically, is, is inherently destructive, and the big distinction, though, is, between, is not between those who believe the culture is inherently destructive and those who don't. The big distinction is between those who do something and those who do nothing. And there is, you know, again, it doesn't matter if, if it's a place you love. You know, I, I hadn't gone back to where I grew up for 20 years because, and I know everybody I know has stories like this, that when you go back to where you grew up, it's usually been destroyed. You know, when my mom was a little girl uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, she uh, used to um, walk across pastures to her grandma's house. And I went and did a talk at the University of Nebraska, and I, I drove to where my mom's house was when she was a little girl. And there isn't a pasture within... 30 miles, you know, it's or 20 miles. It's, it's, it's all subdivisions. It's all houses, and it's, it's all been destroyed. You know, one of, my, one of my mom's favorite movies was Trip to Bountiful, and, uh, you know, it's a wonderful, moving story about this old woman who goes one last time to where she grew up, and it was written, the play was written, I believe, in the 50s, and um, there's no way you could write that story now, um, because she still, because Bountiful, the place where she went, still exists and is still these beautiful fields. And and now if she went back, it would be petrochemical companies. And anyway, so whatever you love, whether it's 
Um, long-form discourse is being destroyed. Independent bookstores are being destroyed. Uh, amphibians are being destroyed. Um, insects are being destroyed. No matter what you love, it's under assault. So, so do something. And then that leads me to my next thing, which is the smartest decision I ever made was in my 20s, and it came because I was uh, not paying enough for gas. And what I mean by this is that I was I knew that this culture is destroying everything. I knew that nature was just getting killed left and right. And also the problem seemed so huge that I didn't know what to do, and so I didn't do anything at all. And then one day I realized that, that I wasn't paying enough for gas, by which I mean that when I bought gas, I wasn't covering the ecological and social costs. And, of course, the same thing is true for everything we buy. But for me, it was gas. And so I, I decided for every dollar I spent on gas, I was going to give a dollar to a local environmental organization. But I didn't have any money, so I also gave myself the option of paying myself $5 an hour to do activism. And so if I, at the time, gas was, I don't know, a buck a gallon or 80 cents a gallon, and so if I spent $10 on gas in a week, that means I had to do two hours of activism. And so I started by writing letters to the editor, or um, I went to participate in an anti-circus demo and an anti-fur demo and an anti-nuclear weapons demo. And then I started doing timber sale appeals, which is trying to stop the Forest Service from uh, putting out timber sales of <clears throat> selling public trees below cost and um, and it was uh, and then I, within a few months I had been sort of been incorporated into the activist community and I was having so much fun with the activism that I didn't have to keep track of the, the, the gas anymore <coughs> excuse me and my point is that <clears throat> that got me off my behind and when I do interviews a lot of times I'll ask people so what is it what was it about you that, that, that got you from the point of going, oh, gosh, things are bad, I should do something, and actually doing something? And um, <clears throat> for me, it was just that, the, the realization that, you know, it's the same with books that, you know, I've written 25, 26, 27, 28 books, whatever now, and the truth is I don't write a book because writing a book is too intimidating and scary. What I do is I write a page, and then I write another page, and then I write another page, and the same with activism. You know, we face, the problems we face are so huge. And I'm sure it was the same with Diane Wilson that, that you know, it's like, what do I do? And now the attorney, you know, I have to, so what do I do? Well, I can either throw up my hands or I can just um, do what I need to do today and then do what I need to do tomorrow. And by the time, you know, before you know it, then I've, I'm actually doing something that needs to be done. And... So, Derek uh, Jensen, author of several books, and we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about what is the psychic basis of our collection, collective delu delusions. Why are we living in a way that doesn't honor the earth? And what do we do to create a, a happier life, to, to, um, to understand water as life and live and create systems and structures that honor that basic truth? i 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us today is Derek Jensen. Um, he's the author or co-author of over 25 books, including Bright Green Lies. I am now going to play a clip from uh, one of his books, A Language Older Than Words. And before we play this clip, I want to give a warning because it is a difficult clip to hear. So if somebody has experienced um, serious um, sexual trauma or something, you may want to um, take a break because um, uh, he openly shares this. And then he, he spent the last decades connecting our environment, connecting these issues. So, Patrick, can you please play that clip from his book, um, A Language Older Than Words? My own introduction to this silencing, and this is similarly true for a great percentage of children as well within many families, came at the hands and genitals of my father, who beat my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and who raped my mother, my sister, and me. I can only speculate that because I was the youngest, my father somehow thought it best that instead of beating me, he would force me to watch and listen. I remember scenes, vaguely as from a dream or movie, of arms flailing, of my father chasing my brother Rob around and around the house. I remember my mother pulling my father into their bedroom to absorb blows that might have otherwise landed on her children. We sat stone-faced in the kitchen, captive audience to stifled groans that escaped through walls that were just too thin. The vagueness with which I recollect these formative images is the point here, because the worst thing my father did went beyond the hitting and the raping to the denial that any of it ever occurred. Not only bodies were broken, but broken also was the bedrock connection between memory and experience between psyche and reality. His denial made sense, not only because an admission of violence would have harmed his image as a socially respected, wealthy, and deeply religious attorney, but more simply because the man who would beat his children could not speak about it honestly and continue to do it. Speak about it honestly and continue to do it. So, um, Derek, um, why did you why did you make the story public? I mean, wh- wh- why why bring this in the public domain? Um, because it exemplifies a process that is um, is I want to say ubiquitous is is common and is also killing the world and. R.D. Lang came up with the three rules of a dysfunctional family, and I think they're also the three rules of a dysfunctional culture. And rule A is don't, and rule A1 is rule A does not exist, and rule A2 is never discuss the existence or non-existence of rules A, A1, or A2. And what that means within a dysfunctional family is that you can talk about anything you want except for the violence that you have to pretend isn't happening. And then you can... Also, you can't talk about the fact that you can't talk about the violence that doesn't happen. You can't talk about the fact that you can't talk about the fact that you can't talk about the fact that you can't talk about the violence that doesn't happen, and so on. And so you end up uh, denying what's going on in front of your face. And <clears throat> the same thing is true on a larger scale. You know, we can talk about, I mean, you mentioned bright green lies, and, you know, we can talk about, um, how wind and solar are going to save the day, but, I mean, they're actually just as destructive in their own way as um, 
as oil and gas, and they're they're they have their own problems. And and from the perspective of right whales and um, koala bears and little brown bats, um, they don't help at all. So we can't talk. It's, it's really interesting that mainstream newspapers can talk blithely about um, the end of humans. I mean, the New York Times has talked about how humans may not exist in 100 years, and and uh, Richard Dawkins has talked about that. Uh, Elon Musk has talked about that because of AI. It's all just... And people can talk about the end of humans, but they but they can't talk about stopping the actions that are leading to this potential end. I mean, they would they their identification is more they identify more closely with the culture than what they do with life on Earth or or the continuation of human life on Earth. Year one, and that's just nuts. And that's that's one of the things that that well that's that's one reason I wrote about that. Another reason I wrote about that is because. Um, that book was originally supposed to be about just a happy little book about interspecies communication. It was supposed to be how, um, you know, we have conversations with non-humans all the time. And I started asking people, because I had had various interactions with non-humans that showed they weren't the beast machines that um, Descartes said they were. And I started having asking other people, you know, so have you had, you know, conversations with, you know, dogs, cats, coyotes, mountain lions, trees, whatever, whomever. And the people always responded the same way, which is, yeah, you know, I've, I have, but I never talk about it because people think I'm crazy. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to write a book about <clears throat> the dissonance between our public and private discourse. So we're all experiencing these interactions all the time, but when nobody talks about them. And but I never could write that book. I never did write that book, and um, I kept trying to write it, trying to write it. And then finally, one day, it hit me that the real thing that I wanted to write about was how before you can exploit somebody, you have to silence them. You have to, or more accurately, you have to deafen yourself to them. So before, and there's a great line by Neil Everenden about how vivisectors will often cut the vocal cords of um, dogs because they don't want the dog to scream or, in their language, emit high-pitched vocalizations because if it did, that would tell them what they knew already, which is the dog is a feeling being. And so he has this, Neil Everton had this really interesting thing about how in cutting their vocal cords, they're simultaneously denying that they're feeling beings, and they are acknowledging they are, because if they had not cut them, so what they, their, their solution to it, instead of not doing the, thing, the horrible thing in the first place, their solution to it is to literally silence the other. And so I got really interested then in how, um, how is it that we silence the voices of others, and how is it that we um, that we uh, that we deafen ourselves to, to these others? How is it that we we um, pretend that the others' uh, existences so, aren't meaningful? So, and, so in 
Yeah, and so in our society, we we think humans are all that matters, right? I mean, it's it, the world was made for humans, and and the world was made for humans, and we are the only creatures that matter on this planet. That's sort of a dominant paradigm of the last thousand, six thousand years. Absolutely. And, and that paradigm is the basic cause of climate change, deforestation, and depression of humans as well. Um, and yeah. anxiety. And I wrote a book called The Myth of Human Supremacy that, uh-huh. that goes through all of our We're going to take arguments. a book, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the myth of human su- supremacy. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You are somebody. Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us is Derek Jensen, um, author of uh, twenty more, twenty uh, more than twenty, twenty-five books, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, and one of them is the myth of human superiority. So, tell us a little bit about that book, Derek. Um, it's it's about how um, one of the most destructive notions that we humans have ever come up with is was called the, is called the Great Chain of Being, and it's um, this notion that at, there's a scale of perfection with God at the top, and then below God are angels, and then below that is men, and then below that is women, and then below that is animals of various types, then plants, then um, precious gems, and then soil, and then sand or something. And it's a scale from, at at the top, is something that's completely disembodied, and at the bottom is something that's completely embodied. And humans are a battleground between mind and body, with mind being superior and perfect, and body being uh, flawed and corrupt and, and bad. And... Um, that, you know, was, was part of the basis of, you know, Christianity. And we can, we can think that we are, uh, you know, past that in these sort of secular days, but we've just secularized it. So these days at the top is science, mathematics, pure reason, machines, and then we still go down through... Uh, there's a line from uh, the African Queen about nature is what we're here to rise above. That there's this idea we're supposed to rise above nature as opposed to be to live in nature, to be embedded in nature. And so that was Yeah, there's so much um inconsistencies because uh, you know a lot of leading theologians uh, theologians, I'm not saying that right, but believe that it is in the deep code of nature that 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 God's rules exist. And um I'm not I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but there's this wonderful abundance living in the world. And a, a, a faith that reflects and sees that abundance um, has also been part of the culture of humans. So, but this story of domination and control—that is a—that's f- a very dangerous story. It's a, do you agree with that? I don't know if I said well, that I the way I wanted to. You. And I also agree with you that there are strains that have opposed it. 
Mm-hmm. Completely agree with all of that. Um, and 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 so one of the places I go in this book is I I take a lot of our arguments for why we believe we're superior, and I show that they're kind of bunk, <laughs> and that they're all based on the notion that, you know, what we do is we come up with, with a way to tell, like, how do we know humans are superior? Well, because we made cars, and because we made digital wristwatches, and because we made um, computers. And it's like, what we've done is we've chosen something that we did, and then we've decided that's how you decide somebody's superior. And that's just tautological. You know, I would argue that that a sign of intelligence would be to not destroy the the land that is your only source of life, which makes us not very smart. No. Anyway, so I, I go through a lot of the arguments. You know, like, uh, I have some fun in the middle of it with... Um, uh, one of the things we argue is that the reason we're so smart is because our brains are so big. Well, I got bad news, which is that um, our brains our brains are about the same size, I believe, as a walrus's, and much smaller than a whale's. And then people go, well, oh, no, the important thing is not brain size at all, but it's brain size to body mass ratio. Well, unfortunately, the Brain size to body mass ratio, um, shrews have a much bigger brain size to body mass ratio than we do, and so do songbirds. And it's like, oops. And, and so then what you do is they just create shifting goalposts. Well, it's not that, obviously. It's, it's something else. And, and there's all these... Um, oh, it's, I, there was this thing about how uh, chimpanzees, in a, in a, they, they kept them in a lab, which is horrible, of course, and they had the chimpanzee play this game, and it consistently defeated humans at this game. And the person writing this up said uh, that was clearly because the humans were overthinking it. Hmm. But like, even when we lose, then we have to use that as an example of how we're superior. I mean, it's just crazy. It is crazy. Um, and, you know... Also, we we live under uh, cultural narratives right now. So one of one of the big uh, stories is, um, you know, what is the real life? And so kids will hear in school, what are you going to do when you get out in the real world? What is the real world? And I want to take these this segment and really ground ourselves into what is happening in the real wor- real world right now, right here. Well, this is there's a joke I used to tell about this that that. You know, when people say the real world, like I would give a talk at a, at a university and the students would say, you know, if, if I were to say to them, what are you going to do when, the, when you get in the real world, they would all understand that to mean what are you going to do when you have to get a job, that that's the real world. And then I would say, you know what I'm going to do when I get in the real world? I'm going to roll around in the dirt, you know? <laughs> that's the real world. So this is part of the problem is that, and it's, okay, so... So this guy, uh, John Livingston, wrote this great thing many, many years ago about how, um, okay, so what I want you to do uh, um, and what I want everybody in listening to this to do is to look around right now and to feel around and to ask yourself how many of the perceptions that you have right now are created by or mediated by humans or technology? And on the other hand, how many uh, of the perceptions that you have 
originate in wild non-humans. Like right now, I can see the, the, the paintings on the wall. I can see the walls. I can see the wood stove. I can see two dogs. I can see some house plants. Um, and then through the windows, I can see uh, some wild nature. But um, that's uh, extraordinary because what you... What, what John Livingston said is that he believes, and I agree with this, that we're living in an echo chamber and that if you're in an echo chamber, you go crazy and that he thinks most of our ideologies are hallucinations. And this is so true. You know, you, that sounds really cosmic or really, you know, you've got to think about it, but think about this for a second, that, you know, every day uh, the newspapers report that the stock market went up or down. They don't talk about wild nature on a daily basis, and if they do talk about some species, it's going to go extinct. Where does the newspaper go every single time? Where it goes is to how that will affect the economy. Yeah, and I know you were at, you, you shared this on another podcast that you were once asked to write a, an article about the sixth mass extinction. Many people are saying we are living in the sixth mass extinction. And the person um, asking you to write this article said, oh, but find a hopeful ending at the end of this story. So it's not truth-telling about the crisis that, the consequences of humans on the planet right now? And how do we wake well, up to that total, to our way of being with, this, with, our fellow, with our kin? You know, one of the reasons that my mother stayed with my father is there weren't battered women's shelters in the 50s and 60s. But another reason she stayed with him is because of the false hope that he would change. And false hopes, I remember reading some literature about the AIDS crisis back in the 80s or 90s, where there was this one line just slapped me in the face, which is eliminate false hope. And mm. I think that that's absolutely crucial to do to, um, you know, like I mentioned, the wind and solar aren't really going to help. And what they do is they waste time on solutions that won't work. They waste time we don't have on solutions that won't work, and in fact don't help the natural world anyway. And I really, you know, we can talk all we want about problems with the Western medical model, but I have a dear friend who's a doctor that I love one of the things he says, which is um, correct diagnosis is the first step toward proper treatment. And if, if you are going around all the time, you know, okay, so, so my book Endgame I wrote because um, I would do talks and I would ask people in the audience, how many of you think we're going to have a voluntary transformation to a sane and sustainable way of living? And nobody would ever say yes. And all the grassroots environmentalists I knew and still know were hanging on by their fingernails, just trying to protect this or that scrap of ground until this large, larger destructive system collapsed. And so I would say, how many of you, how many of you think there's going to be a, a voluntary transformation? Nobody. I said, so if you don't believe there's going to be a voluntary transformation, and if you care about life on the earth, how does that affect your strategy and your tactics? And the answer is, most of us don't know because we don't talk about it because we're all so busy pretending that there's going to be a magical transformation. The shift is going to hit the fan, as some people Well, and I'm, I'm going to jump right in here because I can remember being involved, and it's like, okay, 2020, we're going to figure it out, and all this visioning, and, and it's going to be really good. And the other day I heard, okay, now it's 2030, and it's like, I just wanted to exhale at that because um, I, I, I think it's, it's true. We're just not getting to the core. And, and, um, and yet at the same time, I don't know what to do, right? I mean, it's confusing. 
Well, I think what you do is what you're doing, which is you talk about it. That's that's the first step. You know, if if rule A of a dysfunctional family or dysfunctional culture is don't, then rule A is do. And that's why I wrote a language all of the words, because we need to talk about it, because we need to, if we're going to, to find our way through it, we need to be able to uh, discuss it and discuss our options, discuss our... Um, discuss where we are. We need to, you know, you know, the first thing you do if you're lost is you try to figure out where you are in relation to other things. And so if we're, and we're, we are sorely lost in terms of, you know, cognitively, in terms of, of spiritually, in terms of consciously, we're, we're horribly lost in this destructive way of being. So I would say the first thing we do is, is we assess and then we do what you do, which is to do something that is going the right direction, as I try to do something that is going the right direction, and then, and then, and then we we move from there to whatever, whatever next steps. See, so that's that's another thing is that a lot of people have said to me, "Gosh, Derek, you've written all these books. What you should do now is you should organize." And I was like, <laughs> "I can't even organize my pens," you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't. Uh, also, I'm a very much an introvert, and. I know people, like I had this friend that I said one day, you know, so what are you going to do today? And she says, I don't know, I'm kind of bored, so I think I'm going to go leaflet outside of Walmart. And I was like, you're going to talk to strangers on purpose? And, you know, she she loved doing that. And So that each, we, each, we each find our own our own exactly. thing to do. And uh, we got one, we're going to take a break again. And I am going to share that you influenced my uh, New Year's uh, resolution. And so um, at home for decades, I'm primarily a vegetarian, but occasionally I'll go out and eat meat. And um, I've decided that if I'm going to eat any meat that I do not know the farmer, I have to pay $20 to uh, donate $20 to an animal rights group. So create this fund so that way I can make my own justice and, and try to build something up that is so much better than this world. And not better, but living or as good as the world we're in. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and with me is Derek Jensen. He's the author of 25 books, including Bright Green Lies, Endgame, The Culture of Make-Believe, A Language Older Than Words. And um, we were talking in the last segment about, you know, the real world. And sometimes people will hear, what are you going to do when you get done with school and you go in the real world? Well, the real world is this um, awesome, just immensely undescribable, beautiful, wonderful um, sacred place. And um, But here's what's happening in the real world. Um, today, 90% of the world's large fish are gone right now. 90% of the fish are gone. And when I first read that statistic in your book, Derek, I thought that was maybe not accurate. And so I checked, and World Preservation Foundation also reports the same thing. Um, pollution kills 7 million people every year. Uh, and as I read that, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. But that was in the National Geographic. So, I mean, I there's just, again, it's it, there's, there's so much going on in the real world that's um, abusive and a tragedy. And very hard to be aware of. Yeah, you know, it's. Um, I think one of the things that breaks my heart, among the most, is the collapse of insect populations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 
I know when I was a kid, you know, it's a classic thing that a lot of people have said that, um, you know, we had to clean the windshield all the time when we drove somewhere. Yeah. And I never see that. I never, I don't know when the last time I cleaned my windshield was, probably years ago. And um, outside, I just don't, I don't, I don't see them. Um, I've lived in the same place. I mentioned earlier the, these redwood forests. I've lived here for 22 years, and um, I used to see in the middle of winter. Uh, it's pretty cool, you know, Daddy Longlegs, mm-hmm. the harvestman. Um, in the winter, they will congregate. You know, they used to congregate in groups like the size of maybe a dinner plate, and it would stick out a couple inches. So they're all there together, like under the eave of the house or against a tree. And I I have seen, like, I haven't seen any of those congregations for years, and I've seen, like, three daddy long legs at all. Um, I used to see, these aren't insects, obviously, but I used to see rough-skinned newts. If you lift up a log, you see a rough-skinned newt. And I haven't seen a rough-skinned newt in five years. And, and old-timers, when I first moved here, they said that there were times they would be, like, putting their feet up in a pond up in the up in the mountains or up in uh, a stream in the mountains and they might have they might see 50 or 100 rough newts at a time and i've never seen that but i used to see one or two and i haven't seen them in years and it's just it's the same with with everything banana slugs even that and this is a bad thing and i did not approve of it but uh, my mom had a had a flower garden that she loved and she used to kill slugs in the garden she would always say derek go inside I know you don't want to see this. But, um, anyways, and I mean, this, you would see a hundred slugs in the garden in a day easily. Mm-hmm. And um, I see maybe ten slugs a year now, or banana slugs. Um, it's just extraordinary that collapse, and it it doesn't matter what creature you love. It's 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 in big trouble, and. Um, and the same is true. So, so even in the 1930s, I, I live about 20 miles north of the Klamath River. Even in the 1930s, the Klamath, which is a pretty big river, um, would be quote black and roiling with fish. And the the Yurok and the the Talawa have lived on salmon forever. And um, the Indians down on the Klamath have had to. Uh, not do their salmon festival any longer because there's not enough fish. And it's just, the, the salmon have been here for probably a million, million and a half years, I believe. Um, it's just, it, it is, and, and even people who are not environmentalists at all, you know, for, for 30, 40 years, I know all sorts of, I've known all sorts of older people who have said, there just aren't as many birds at my bird feeder anymore. And they're not environmentalists. They're just people who enjoy feeding birds at the bird feeder. And you know, it's, you know, um, t- go ahead. To, 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 just, to try to take this in, and there's so many little threads I want to try to weave together. Um, because um, I, I do believe in the image of happy warrior. I mean, that was Hubert Humphreys, one of the things they said, and that, and I know other people are talking about that when it comes to this cr- climate crisis, that if the, the, it, as we become aware or as we know all the awful stuff that's occurring, 
it's almost paralyzing. And one thing you were quoted as saying uh, or, um, is that I am complex enough to know that we're really screwed and life is good. And holding those two at the same time is so powerful. You know, that is, thank you. And that's, that's so true that there's this idea that if you recognize how bad things are, you have to go around being miserable all the time. And that's, you know, honestly, I think a lot of us, I don't do this anymore. I used to do this. Um, I think a lot of us spend more energy simply avoiding feeling bad than we would if we felt bad. Without a doubt. Now, and I have a, a story because we talked a little bit about a mother's, and even in the show I started with, I'm saying, Betty's daughter. And so my mom did pass last year, March of last so year. And like you, you offered hospice care to your mom. And... Um, and what I found about that time is, you know, I was so afraid in some ways about facing that time, but it wasn't, I was so grateful to be able to share that experience with her. I mean, we were, partly because of COVID, we did not do, um, we may have chosen other options, but um, but I was so grateful. Um, and, and so there is something and I don't even know how to label it, and I think it's almost hard to always label it, but there's just something so living about being with suffering instead of denying suffering. Well, I think we can deny suffering, but it's going to find its way. And we can pretend we don't feel it, but, again, that takes more energy than just feeling it. Um, and, and there's a really important thing about feeling the pain, whether it is of our beloved mother's dying or our beloved mother earth dying is or being killed, is that we can feel it and it doesn't kill us. Or or maybe it does kill us, but the good thing about it killing us in that way, spiritually and metaphorically, is what it kills, is it kills our hope in the system. And we can still sing and we can still dance and we can still make love and we can still fight like hell, but once you've broken off that belief in the system and you no longer believe in the system, but you believe in nature, you've moved your loyalty from the system to nature. You know, there's a part of my mom that had to die before she could leave my father. And that's the part that believed that, he, that the relationship so was Der- Derek Jensen, uh, Jensen, I'm sorry, we need to be uh, done right now. I'm sure we can talk much longer, but if people want to uh, read more of your writing and learn more about it, about you, it's you can go to your website, Derek Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N. Um, so I thank you so much for joining us, and I thank you so much for listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Let's go.